0: Hello, comrades, and welcome to the podcast you are currently listening to. I promise,
1: this isn't a Russian invasion, just a temporary occupation. I'm Roberto, one of the hosts of the
0: podcast, Czar Power. And I'm Brendan, the other half of the podcast. Together, we're ranking the Russian rulers from Rurik to Putin. They will compete based on how well they fought, how successful they were in life, how much kompromat or blackmail they had on them, how handsome they were, and how long they ruled for. After being
1: scored, we decide whether they get to party it out in the Kremlin or get sent straight to the Gulag. Those who make it to the Kremlin will need to duke it out for the position of best Russian ruler. You can find us on any podcast host as Tsar Power, on Twitter at Tsar Pod, and on Facebook as Tsar Power. That's Tsar spelled T-S-A-R.
0: Now, back to your regularly scheduled podcast. And if you hear a knock on your door, beware. The KGB is going to make your stay a bit more permanent.
1: Bienvenue Avenue to Battle Royale, where we are passing judgment on all of the kings and emperors of France, from Clovis to Napoleon III.
0: Who will be selected as the creme de la creme, and who will be sent to the guillotine?
1: Jean-Paul Ben Clark.
0: And I'm Eliza Summers. D- didn't
1: we, did we decide to do a new intro for our 0.5 episodes?
0: Did we?
1: I think we did at some point, and then, uh, but I, I I don't know what it was.
0: I don't remember. <laughs> I barely remember the <laughs> original intro Yeah
1: next
0: we do a different one Something to do for the seating, I think
1: uh, Yeah, no, let's just carry on um, So, yeah. so we, are, we are doing, this is episode 32.5 Which means we are doing Yay. a special spectator Who is not in our official list of, uh, of kings But in this case is a queen regent we thought
0: deserved it Thought
1: deserved it um, well, we'll see where she deserves to sit, because I think it'll be an interesting decision with Anne okay. of Keefe, because she's, she's an interesting figure. Yay. So let's uh, let's dive straight into it, shall we? Yes. Well, we'll start, we won't start. We start with Anne, we'll start with her ancestors. Yes. Yes. So we start our story way back in the 9th century, so mm-hmm. Charlemagne time, I guess, or just after Charlemagne. Um with a man named Rurik. He was a Viking, or a Varangian, as they're known in the east. Because um, while people like Rollo's ancestors were sailing west to ravage Britain and, and Francia, Rurik and his tribesmen went east across the Baltic Sea. Damn. He was probably from sort of Sweden area. Yeah. And uh, they would go all down the rivers like they did in France. But these are much longer rivers. And... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, down into what we would now call Russia and Ukraine. Yeah and uh, so Rurik and his kinsmen they raided as far as uh, Constantinople. wow because um, what they do is they they go down as far they, as they could on the river and then they they'd hop a, onto a different river by dragging their boats overland.
0: Oh yeah. Um,
1: and then they'd sail all the way down into the Black Sea. So from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, which is basically Mediterranean, And um, yeah, they went all the way to Constantinople where some of them were employed by the Byzantine emperor as uh, the Varangian guard who became the emperor's personal bodyguards, these Vikings. Mm -hmm. So other Vikings, meanwhile, they settled into new cities like Novgorod in the north and also Kiev in the south. And uh, we are using the native uh, Ukrainian pronunciation, by the way, not the uh, old pronunciation in English which was the Russian pronunciation um and yeah so they're settling along these rivers like the Volkov and the Dnieper um that formed a chain of sort of easy transportation from Finland all the way to Crimea and yeah this sort of Viking nobility that had been established because they were ruling over a population of Slavs but the nobles were Viking but they sort of quickly mingled with the Slavs they like married Slavic women um and they adopted their religion and customs a bit like the Normans did in France. At the same time they retained the fierce like warrior spiritness. Yeah, that <laughs> had like enabled them to conquer so far. But they sort of exchanged boats for horses, I guess. Uh. Um, similar to how the Normans do and uh Yeah, they they're very successful and they, they create a sort of empire, um Although it's mm. very complicated, it, it, it splits up a bunch of times and comes back together, similar to what we've seen in Frankia. Yeah. <laughs> but generally they are known as the Kievan Rus, um, which later evolves into Russians. Although Ru- the Rus are not Russians, they are sort of mm. ancestors of Russians and also Ukrainians and Belarusians and, you know, all those people in that area. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's important not to conflate them too much. Yeah, so they basically just end up becoming sort of Slavs. And they, and they also intermarry with the Byzantines as well, as we will mm-hmm. see. And they create a sort of refined um, Eastern culture. And they they adopt the Orthodox Christianity, yeah. the Eastern Christianity. And if you want to know more about these rulers, make sure you tune in to a podcast that should have just come out by the time we... Releases. Are doing this, yeah. Um, but our friend uh, Roberto, a friend slash VIP patron, Roberto, starting the Tsar Power podcast. Hmm. So that's T S A R Power, Tsar Power, and um, they're going through all of the Russian monarchs, like how we're doing hmm. with the French monarch. So go listen to that if you want to know about Rurik and his descendants, because they're going from Rurik all the way to Putin. Hmm. So that's quite exciting. Um, Except for and- that last
0: name you mentioned. <laughs>
1: Let's hope there's a different last name by the time they finish this podcast. Uh, <laughs>
0: a better one.
1: Uh, yes, we can only hope. I'm sure they will talk about Olga at some point as well. Oh, they better. Is I love of her. She's one your faves, Eliza. She
0: and is Olga fave.
1: is, of course, uh, St. Olga of Kiev. Yeah. She was the wife of one grand prince of Kiev and the mother of another. and
0: A queen regent.
1: Queen regent. And... Uh, she became a Badass saint because around. she's the one who had first adopted Christianity after going to the Byzantines, according to legend.
0: Oh, her revenge. Her husband's death is like, oh, amazing. What is the
1: revenge story, Eliza? What do you know of it? Oh,
0: okay. So basically like her husband got killed and his death was like super brutal. Like he got, his legs got tied to two birch trees and that were bent over. So when they sprung back up, it literally tore his body apart. Mhm. I sound way too happy when I was talking about that. So she's like, you know, I got to get revenge. Like, they killed my husband. So the first invoice from the people who killed, like, came along. And she's like, yeah, da 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 Oh, yeah, come in. Like, you know, take a load off. Yeah, just go <laughs> back to your boat. Well, then she buried them alive.
1: Yes. The I boat. believe they were called the, the Drevelanians or something. The the neighbouring yeah. tribe. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then they sent another envoy because they were like, oh, well, you know, nothing's happened. So they send the second envoy and she's like, hey, have a bath. So they Mm. go into the bathhouse. Boom. They're shut in and and they're burned alive. (laughs) Third one is that she goes to like their capital city. And she's like, yeah, I just want to make peace. But um, all I want for conversation is three like pigeons or doves. And so she takes these doves, but then she attaches like flames to them. (laughs) <laughs> like burning branches or something. and so right. then when they fly back to their nest, their forest sets on fire and the whole city like burns down.
1: Not nice.
0: I know, but literally come on, imagine that revenge So like, like brutal but like damn.
1: That's fun. Anyway, so <laughs> so that's Olga. Um, but she is a direct um, ancestor of the woman that we're talking about today. So her descendants are the Grand Princess of Kiev, the most prestigious branch of the Rurikids. And in the 1030s, uh, when a girl named Anna Yaroslavna is born, the Grand Prince of Kiev is her father, Yaroslav Um a.k.a. Mm. Well, Yaroslav the wise. the wise, yeah. He was the great-grandson of Olga of Kiev, just to give you mm. a... An idea of the time frame. And he was the son of Vladimir, or Vladimir the Great, and his wife...
0: Another great.
1: Yes. And his wife was Anna Porphyrogenita, or Anna the Purpleborn, and she was the daughter of the Byzantine Emperor Romanos II, So you can go learn about right now if you go listen to Charles Rankin's Byzantine Emperor series. You can't move in this family for girls named Anna, all after, after this Byzantine princess. Anna Yaroslavna's mother... A Swedish princess named Ingegird actually adopted the name Anna upon coming to Kiev and is venerated as Saint Anna in the Orthodox oh. Church. They they do this a lot throughout Europe, like when people move, cultures, yeah, they, they change adopt their a name, yeah, yeah. Well, like
0: Catherine the Great changed her.
1: We'll be right back after this. The commander said, "Don't worry, I don't have the authority to kill you today," which was positive for that day anyway. In 1993, Chris Moon was captured by the Khmer Rouge while clearing landmines in Cambodia. With survival probability low, Chris was brought in front of the boss. He was just given a local nickname, Mr. Clever. Hi, I'm Steve Windus, host of the Batting the Breeze podcast. I'd love you to check out how Chris survived, along with some other great human stories at battingthebreeze.com. Hopefully see you there. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, because she, she got, when she got baptised into the Orthodox Church, she took a different name. Um, yeah. Similar, similar things happening here. Although the, the, uh, the difference between Catholic and Orthodox is not as defined yeah. yet. Um, but they are culturally yeah. quite different. I guess maybe people just couldn't pronounce Ingergerd in, uh, <laughs> in Kyiv, but.
0: They're like, Inger, what?
1: Yeah, so Ingergerd's husband, Yaroslav, the father of, Anne of Kyiv, he was an ambitious ruler. Um, he, he defeated a number of his brothers to gain the thrones of not only Kyiv, but briefly uh, Novgorod as well. Mm. He even challenged, uh, sort of rivaled the power of his Byzantine cousins. And he sort of channeled this ambition into finding far away, but prestigious marriages for his daughters.
0: Um, I think Anne was like his most beloved daughter.
1: Where'd you hear that? I
0: read that online. Oh, okay. Well, that was the one he liked the most.
1: (laughs) Just so you know there are a lot of myths about Anne of Kiev which have made their way into not super reliable histories oh. um, there was a documentary I tried to watch but couldn't get through about how she like revolutionized France and it's not really the, the case
0: Why did she bring forks with her?
1: Probably, for all I know. But just so you know, there is a lot of myth-making. So I'm, I'm trying to stick as close as possible to the
0: facts. Okay.
1: But we'll get to the sort of myth around her in Enchante. Might find some good stuff mm. there. But so, yeah, the daughters of Yaroslav, there was um, Elisiv, who married the king of Norway, Anastasia, mm. who married the king of Hungary, Agatha who married uh, Edward the Exile, who was the son of the Anglo-Saxon king Edward Ironside, who uh-huh. was, like, seeking to regain the English throne, which was stolen oh, yeah. by uh, Canute the Great. And finally, we've got Anna, who would make the most prestigious marriage of all. Ooh. She was sort of the second yo- youngest or second youngest, I think.
0: I like all these names of the daughters.
1: Yes, and speaking of names, we should do an etymology for
0: Anna. Yay.
1: Or Anne. So the name Anna is the Greco-Latin form of the name Hannah mm-hmm. or Hannah, Uh, which originates in the Old Testament and the Torah as the name of the prophet Samuel's mother. Hmm. So in in Hebrew, the name uh, means favour or grace, Hmm. as in like grace of God. And it was considered a prestigious imperial name in the East at this point in history. So it was was given to lots of uh, Byzantine princesses, including Anna Comnini, who is the famous writer of the Alexiad, which is a great Uh, Byzantine source. Um, so she was both a princess and a chronicler, which is pretty impressive.
0: Woo!
1: And she also exists around this time, the the 11th sure. century, I think slightly later. So she would have been a sort of cousin of yeah. uh, other Anne. Um, so Anna Yaroslavna, who we're talking about today, she will be the one to bring the name Anne into widespread use in the West by marrying oh. into the Capetians and having various descendants named after her. So
0: Oh, that's nice to know. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Uh, and then, you know, by the later Middle Ages, we'll have all sorts of Greek and biblical names coming into the French royal family. Like we'll have Margarets Cute. and Catherine's and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, yep. But right now they're still very Germanic in their names. So in the year 1050, the Bishop of Moe, Flamen Moes,
0: was
1: a guy called Walter, who was accompanied by Jocelyn of Shawnee, um, arrived with a retinue of rather cold Frenchmen, in Kyiv.
0: Do you mean cold like their personality or they were actually cold, like freezing? Oh, I
1: imagine they were shivering because, you know, it's a bit colder than France. But uh, yeah. <laughs> they came uh, sort of laden laden with gifts for the Grand Prince. So I guess they weren't cold. They were, they were quite warm. And they returned to France with the news that they had found themselves a new queen. Woo, a new yes. queen. So, a few months later, in mid-1050, Anna, who will henceforth be known by the more French name Anne, though she's Mm -hmm. also sometimes called Agnes, which is a bit weird, but whatever. Mm. Um, So, she was packed up and shipped off to the distant city of uh, Arras, where she was to be married and crowned Queen of France. How old
0: was she? Do we know?
1: Um, she was probably... We don't actually know when she was born. Um... So but okay. she was probably around uh, late teens, early twenties. Oh, okay. So not too young. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Not like twelve.
1: Yeah. So it took Anne about ten or eleven months to get to France. Um travel all the way across Germany. She probably stayed at various courts of different counts yeah. and dukes on her way or monasteries as well. Henry the First, her husband to be, who we discussed last episode, and wasn't super memorable. Mm. (laughs) I don't know if you I literally
0: can't remember anything about (laughs) it.
1: No I mean he was a bit overshadowed by All of the noble squabbling that was happening around him And uh, William the Conqueror Basically
0: overshadowed by everyone else
1: Yeah well William the Conqueror sort of was starting his career at that point So he sort of overshadowed Henry a bit Yeah So yeah Henry was 18 years older And he'd had no living children by his wife Matilda of Frisia Oh yeah um, so there was sort of, there was no time for pleasantries. They had to get down to business.
0: Yeah. Or oh, wasn't she like a fertile myrtle?
1: She was a fertile myrtle. So, um, uh, their first child, a boy named Philip was born 12 months after the wedding. Dang. Um, so that's, you know, time efficient, I guess. And mm-hmm. three more children followed. But yeah, the, the, the first uh, born was called Philip, which is a new name that we haven't seen.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and we, he will be our next episode, so we will get into why he's called Philip and in, in his Yay. etymology. Yeah. Yay. But just know it's, it's, of course, a Greek name, so it, it comes yeah. from her Greek ancestry. It wasn't the only Greek thing about him because Anne h- may have hired a Greek tutor for him. Greeks being sort of the OG intellectuals as far as you uh, yeah. Are concerned yeah what with you know having invented philosophy and everything. So Anne as queen sort of developed this reputation for bringing a lot of culture and learning to the court, uh, sponsored a lot of monasteries, got on really well with the with the church uh, despite the cultural differences because of the church she was raised in it's probably a lot different. From the Western Church. Mm. Yeah, so she was very active sort of in the the intellectual and cultural sphere, but politically she was quite quiet. She just gets on with it in the background, and she doesn't show up in the Chronicles very much. Uh Oh. Makes sense, because she has no attachments or affiliations in France when she arrives. So she's not going to be like a Constance. Where she's got cousins in the Anjou faction and her enemy and rival is in the Blois faction and Yeah. You know, they're She must
0: be loyal to the King. Yeah.
1: Anne's only loyalty is to the King, exactly. So, um and to her family, but they're really far away.
0: Yes, yeah, so it's kinda hard. Yeah. To help them out. Mm. Or get help from them. Because it takes so long to get there.
1: Yeah. Also like Constance, in in spite of coming from a country that was perceived as sort of culturally superior because it was close to um, Byzantium. She didn't flaunt her culture as much. And she didn't Oh, wear... didn't
0: show off those forks?
1: Yeah, she didn't wear flamboyant clothes and that sort of thing. She, um, she seems to have been quite modest. And she really walked the line of, like, adapting to the Frankish culture uh, while also bringing in some new refined...
0: Oh, that's good.
1: Based on the fact that she didn't cause much of a stir We can assume that she blended it She, um, you know, didn't stir the pot too much Yeah But yeah, a lot of this is reading between the lines Because she really isn't mentioned much During the actual queenship The the events that unfold during her regency, however Are a bit more famous and momentous Ooh Yeah uh, But yeah, she pretty much spends the whole reign of Henry You know, making babies Endowing churches bringing in cheaters, the usual stuff. So it's time for the king to die, and it's time for a bit of scandal. woo Yeah. So on the 4th of August, 1060, Henry I died nine years into his marriage with Anne. If you remember, it was death by laxative.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
1: (laughs) So uh, Philip, little Philip, had been associated as junior king the year before Henry uh, died. So when he'd first been starting to get ill. So despite Philip being about eight years old, he was indisputably the king.
0: A nice smooth succession line going on.
1: However, he needs a regent.
0: True. He's too young.
1: So based on like charters that were issued at the time, because this is a sort of murky period um, in terms of our history, but it appears that uh, Anne shared the regency initially with Baldwin V, Count of Flanders.
0: Hmm.
1: Yes. So, Baldwin V, he, uh, was married to her sister-in-law, Princess Adela of France.
0: Oh.
1: Um, and they, remember, were the parents of Matilda of Flanders. Oh, yeah. Who's now married to William, the soon-to-be-conqueror. Um, oh, yeah. William the Bastard, still at this point. This choice is, is mainly put down to Baldwin's sort of skill as administrator. He was quite old at this point. Mm. And, um he was seen as a good link between the French and the Normans who had been fighting a lot recently.
0: Yeah.
1: So he's a good choice for sort of co-regent with Anne, who's still quite a foreign. foreign. Yeah. So William of Malmesbury, the Anglo-Norman chronicler, justifies mm-hmm. the prudence of making Baldwin of Flanders regent. He says, quote, the dying king delegated the, the care of his son Philip, at that time extremely young, to Baldwin, Earl of Flanders. He was a man equally celebrated for fidelity and wisdom in the full possession of bodily strength and also ennobled by a marriage with the king's sister. His daughter Matilda, a woman who was uh, a singular mirror of prudence in our time and the perfection of virtue, had already been married to William. Hence it arose that being mediator between his ward and his son-in-law, Baldwin restrained by his wholesome counsels the feuds of the chiefs and of the people.
0: Hmm. So
1: he's bringing the nation together, I guess.
0: Glowing review.
1: Yeah. Um, however, while it all looks pretty peachy for Anne at the start of the Regency with Baldwin by her side, it quickly becomes clear that things are not quite going to plan. Ooh. A year or maybe two years into her Regency, around 1061 62. Uh, she seems to drop off entirely from the charters that are Ooh. issued in King Philip's name. She suddenly becomes Persona Non Grata.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, and this is long before the year in which he is supposed to reach majority. So it's not like the regency is over. Yeah. Because um, he's better to reach beginning. majority when he turns 14, which is in 1066. Yeah. Uh, funnily enough.
0: Mm.
1: So um, instead, Baldwin uh, seems to be the sole regent for the intervening four or five years. Um, though mm. he won't get an episode because he's, he's not as interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe if we end up doing like The Counts of Flanders or something, he can get an episode, but not right now. Yeah. Um, so, any guesses as to why Anne might have suddenly disappeared
0: Okay, he locked her up. He ever okay. killed her? There's some scandal, like oh, she ran off with a man.
1: Yep, you got it. You got it in three. She <laughs> ran off with a man. So uh, it's a year after her husband's death. You know, she's she wants a bit of loving. Um yeah. Either that, or, or she, she gets, made... or she gets captured or something.
0: We no. don't really know.
1: Um, but around the age of thirty, um, Anne remarries likely knowing full well that this would end her regency so she's sort of abdicating it almost um, but she does it anyway and you know let's you know let's take the romantic idea that she chooses love over power let's yeah. let's say that though the same can't be said for her husband who is an ambitious lesser mm. noble who wants more power more power and this is a man called ralph of creppy <laughs> with a lot of crepes flying around where he lives
0: sounded more like crappy
1: Ralph the Crappy (laughs) Yeah Uh, He is the Count of the Valois region Which is just northeast of Paris And he's one of these sort of lesser lords in the royal domain He is way too far down on the totem pole To be marrying a queen dowager Yeah Which is really something that nobody should be doing anyway uh, Especially when she's like mid-regency Yeah
0: He sounds schemey
1: He is... Related to Henry In some way He's some kind of Distant cousin um,
0: uh, Everyone's a distant cousin
1: Yes uh, Which creates ma- Which creates problems With him getting married To Anne Because she is his, Therefore his cousin By marriage Which is Obviously oh, yeah. People don't like that when you no that. no So yeah He he only inherited Half a castle The castle of Crepi.
0: Half a castle
1: Yeah From his father Ralph Senior He had to share The castle With his brother Tybalt <gasps>
0: Oh my god, not even a whole castle.
1: So these brothers, Ralph and Tybalt, basically have like a duplex castle <laughs> that they share. So um, Ralph gets the inner bit, uh, the keep, and then Tybalt gets the outside of the castle. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's a bit weird. So his marriage to Anne of Kiev was also not his first, nor the first time he'd married upward. So he first oh. married his cousin Adela, mm. not the princess Adela, different Adela, yeah, um, yeah. In her own right, she was the Countess of Basture Orb and Vitry-en-Pertoire, which were both in uh, Lorraine in the East. Yeah. And she was the mother of Ralph's two sons and two daughters. Ralph's second marriage was to a mm-hmm. woman who was... Her name's kind of weird, like iffy. Um, either she was called um, Hacknez or <laughs> Akne. I don't know how to pronounce this word, mm. his name. H-A-Q-U. E N E Z. I'm just gonna call her Hackney. So Hackney <laughs> be a weird name. She she also might have been called something like Eleanor of Hackney or something. Um,
0: hmm. either knows?
1: way, like we don't know if it's like a, a surname or or a first name. Her name is something. We're just gonna call her Hackney. Either way, the um the her origin is unknown, but we do know that she was the Countess of Mondidier.
0: Um, um. which was a castle
1: near Crepi. Because well, It's speculated that she was the Countess of of Montdidier because Ralph acquired this castle after he married her.
0: Ah, he finally has a whole castle.
1: Yeah, he has a whole castle and he he uses Montdidier as his base from then on. Then he accuses Hackney of adultery
0: and repudiates
1: her and takes her castle.
0: Of course he does. Yes.
1: So he's a bit of a, you know, he doesn't have the best record, does Ralph?
0: Yeah. Sounding terrible. Yeah. What did Anne see in him?
1: Maybe he was just he was just maybe very he was sexy. like a charmer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: He knew how to say the right words, sweet talk the women. Yeah.
1: The chronicler Guybert of Nogent, uh accuses Ralph of ruling unlawfully held lands, referring to Mondidier. So this is how we think maybe he stole it from Hackney. So when he married Anne, Ralph was still midway through this like literal divorce battle because like there was there were actual battles going on about this divorce. Because, you know, as we've seen before, divorces get messy when there are castles and knights involved. So the marriage was doubly controversial for this reason. And now suddenly Ralph's sort of scandalous conduct was everyone's business, including uh, Gervais, the Archbishop of Reims, who answered an appeal from Ralph's ex-wife, so Hackney, and wrote to Pope Alexander II, who either excommunicated Ralph or threatened to excommunicate Ralph I'm not mm. sure I've seen it written differently in different places but
0: yeah
1: either way Ralph related is... to
0: excommunication yes somehow.
1: so Ralph is like by marrying the queen he's his, 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 his sort of local issues suddenly become international
0: Oh wow. and
1: the Pope is like stop right now thank you very much yeah, it's like,
0: this is not happening
1: you don't need somebody with a human touch hey you' <laughs> always on the run. Got to slow down <laughs> and not marry the queen. So, <laughs> bit of spice girls in there. In this sort of threat of excommunication, Ralph is accused of bigamy. Obviously, but, you know, the dissolution of his second marriage hadn't been approved by the church, and also yeah. of consanguinity because he's marrying a cousin's wife. Ooh. Although nobody at Batten and I when he married his cousin in the first mar- In his first marriage. Um, so it's obviously, mm. you know, it's just come to their attention now. The consanguinity argument is, is very tenuous. I think the, yeah. the bigamy argument is the stronger argument.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, interestingly, Anne is not threatened with excommunication. Um, most of the blame is being laid on Ralph. For yeah,
0: they her. probably thought she was like tricked into it or something.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. Like sometimes women are like, seen as kind of like schemers, other times they are seen as um,
0: pitiful women.
1: Yes, so I, I this may be because uh, if she was seen as like um, an adulteress or, or, or something, you know, it would reflect badly on the king who is after all yeah. still her son.
0: Maybe they just thought in the grief of her husband. He had manipulated her. She was mourning her husband's death.
1: Maybe, maybe, but yeah, it is refreshing for a queen to be given the benefit of the doubt. I think.
0: Yes, by I know. These, these
1: hostile sources, as we'll see in Vu, Anne had a had a relatively good relationship with the church, and she was like, "Oh,
0: that's good."
1: Even after she married Ralph, she immediately continued to endow monasteries. Like after, like, so we don't. Oh, that's probably why. Yeah, so we don't get like regency charters from her. Like she stopped being the regent, but we do get her endowing the biggest church that she ever endowed, which was um, the Church of St. Vincent. Um, Mm. And we'll get to that in Argentine. Because there is a statue of her at that monastery. Cool. I'm assuming that Philip in some way intervened to shield her from... Yeah. You know, everything. Backlash. Exactly. So at this point, Anne and Ralph were probably forcibly separated in some way. Yeah. Um, probably at the behest of King Philip's advisors, um, yeah. because Philip himself doesn't seem to have begrudged them too much with well, their relationship. He was still a child. Yeah, we see by the time he becomes an adult, they're basically back at court and like just being there advising him. Maybe it was more Baldwin who was trying to keep them away and like trying to basically put them into hiding until this all blow- blowed over. Yeah, which I guess is sensible. And yeah, in the meantime, Anne is keeping us all busy with all the, these monastic uh, endowments, Ooh. so that's good. So, Anne and, Anne and Ralph were probably reunited uh, by the time of the king's majority in 1066, and they were back at court. And uh, she and Ralph don't seem to have any children,
0: um.
1: Um, so that could be evidence that their marriage was not a sort of uh,
0: fruitful one. Um,
1: uh, well, it may, may not have been a love match, may have been more of a sneaky political one. Ralph uh, does start referring to himself as the king's stepfather from the late 1060s, Ugh. which he probably wouldn't have been able to get away with if, if the king hated him that much. So True. we can assume that there's a that everyone's generally chill with each other in this situation. We're this tolerating
0: each other, at least.
1: Yeah. So Ralph having the king's favour is further evidenced by his continued loyalty to the Capetians which had not always been the case. In his younger years, he had been a rebel.
0: Ooh.
1: Um, but now as the king's stepfather, he's, he's very loyal and he's, he's, he's putting his skills to good use, serving the
0: king. Oh, that's good.
1: Yeah. So there's a few like skirmishes around his lands in Picardy and Lorraine in the late 1060s. And he also helps out in the War of Flemish Succession, which pops off Ooh. after Baldwin V dies, which we'll get to next Ooh. episode. And that's in the early 1070s. And in the meantime, he also expanded his personal holdings into Amiens and the Vexan. Um,
0: of course. Which is
1: sort of around, just generally, the Picardy area. And uh, essentially, he ended up uh, reigning over most of Picardy, And huh. uh, the Count of Vermandoir was even one of his vassals. Oh, wow. This is when the House of Vermandoir has really gone downhill.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. However, Ralph, he would go to his grave in 1074, still not in the good graces of the church.
0: <laughs> no heaven for him!
1: Yes, and his, his own personal legacy would not last. Um, so his his surviving son, Simon, was very young. So Philip sort of repossessed Simon's lands um, as part yeah. of his efforts to defend against Normandy, which is becoming yeah. quite a threat in Philip's reign. And we'll get to that next episode, obviously. <laughs> so Simon, uh, he had to move out of Montdidier back to Crepi.
0: To the half-castle?
1: To the half-castle. Uh, although I think the brother would be dead at this point, so um, it's, he's got the whole castle, um, the, the old family seat. But he also has to move his dad's body. He has to oh. exhume his dad's body from Montdidier and move it to Crepi. And apparently seeing the half-rotted corpse of his blasphemous father had a sort of harrowing effect on Simon, who decided yeah. from that moment on to dedicate his life to God and become a monk.
0: Yep. Yeah, a half-dead rotting body will do that to you.
1: Yeah. That's the excuse. It's probably more likely he was forced into becoming a monk because King Philip wanted to disinherit his stepbrother. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: and take all his land. Yeah. So yeah, Simon's a monk. He's not a problem. And Ralph is dead. So Simon's lands in the Vexan, they were mostly given to Anne's younger son, Prince Hugh. Huh. Who gained most of Picardy, including Vermandoir by marrying its last heiress, Countess Adelaide mm. Adelaide of Vermandoir, who was the last Vermandoir mm. um, so that is the end of the House of Vermandoir, who we talk about mm, in bye our bye. first our first patreon episode. Yeah. and I think they received a, a quite a low rating uh, yeah. <laughs> of the houses. we weren't very impressed with them at the height of their power, they were more of a nuisance than anything else true, yeah. So Anne, getting back to Anne, what's she been doing?
0: Yes, what has she been doing? So
1: she's been an advisor to the king this whole time. Cool. So, you know, she's probably involved in the whole overthrowing her stepson thing. And uh, she witnesses charters up to the mid-1070s. But there is no further scandal that she's involved in. Okay. And she is said to have followed Ralph to the grave shortly after his death in 1075, Though some sources put her death as late as ten eighty. And her cause oh. of death is unknown. So she sort of just fades fades out. How old was she? Um she would have been about fifty when she died. Oh. Yeah. Not too young, not too old, I guess, for this time. So that is that is Anna Keeve's life. It's um Ooh. interesting. It's a bit it's fairly spotty. Yeah. But we will get into more detail as we as we rate her. So we'll get into Enchante.
0: Enchante.
1: She's almost more of a symbol than she is a real person, which, which is not going to be great for some rounds, but it's great for this round because <laughs> there's a lot of images. So here is the um, 19th century portrait. The nineteenth-century art artist oh, impression that we're using as the episode icon.
0: Queenly vibes. She just has this like gracefulness about her. So she's got like you know the white cloth that goes over the head. Mm-hmm. She's got a beautiful crown. Mm-hmm. Her like clothing is bejeweled. Looks like pearls, I'd say. Mm. At least on the the middle of the necklace, the collar. I mean, not necklace, collar of the shirt of dress. And some other jewels. Mm. Something about her face, though. She just has this, like, queenly, look, like, gracefulness.
1: It's almost like a sort of Mona Lisa expression. Yeah. It's very en- enigmatic.
0: Yes. But you like it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, interesting you say she's graceful since her name means grace in Hebrew. <laughs> That's interesting. Um true, true. it's it's, it's similar, I think it might be the same artist or a similar artist to the Geburger portrait that we used. Uh, oh, okay. She was more like side-on in that portrait. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, next image we've got... Why is no one ready? We've got <laughs> a um, medieval depiction of Anne and Henry getting married. Ooh. Sort of like, um... We've got to the left, he's sort of, like, ordering the bride. And then he gets his mail-order bride um in, in the... In, oh, yeah. it's
0: like, oh, It's like, ah, it's arrived the right. yeah. in the mail.
1: <laughs> she arrived in the mail. But it's interesting, we've got two Henrys in the same image. And two Archbishop's. Yeah, I know. I
0: was, like, tripping.
1: Yeah. Seeing double. Oh,
0: you can tell that she has braided hair.
1: Yes. Actually, the, a lot of these... Well, we're going to see more images next episode. But all of the women... Have these lovely braided hair This is later This is like Again Sort of 14th century So it more reflects yeah. The fashion of, of that Later Medieval period Yeah Um But yeah She's got Largest locks In, in these the... coiling braids
0: Surprised she has blonde hair In this depiction Like you just think She would have had Darker
1: I mean and she's again, she is again
0: she's Slavic.
1: Yeah maybe. she's half Swedish Yeah true yeah. Um
0: Think I just keep thinking Byzantine.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we. I don't think we know how dark or fair the Byzantines were. I'm assuming they were swarthy. Mm. I love the background. I love the sort of foliage. I know it's beautiful. The acorns in the background. It's really like coiling, spiraling plants. Just lovely. And then we have statues. (laughs) So. Uh I've got a uh a statue of Anne at Saint Vincent in Somley, the abbey that she founded. Huh. Which is not from when it was built, so it's not exactly contemporary, but it is sort of a later I oh I don't know the exact date, but it but it is yeah, it is later um it's sort of early modern depiction.
0: Ooh her hair
1: Yeah, she's got this big old braid.
0: Big long, long, long braids. Mm-hmm. Oh which I'm digging. She's got the crown. She's holding the church in her arm, like a little scale model of it.
1: Show sure that I patronized mm. this, and there's a description at the bottom, which is in yeah. French. It says Anne of Kiev, Queen of France. Uh, she founded this house, uh, something. Um, uh, oh, under the under the name uh, Saint Vincent, in the year of our Lord 1060.
0: Cool. Cool. Like in these depictions. Yeah. Maybe I just cause I like some braids.
1: I love some braids. And we have another statue which is more modern. Ooh. So um Anne has become sort of a sort of like a nationalist symbol for both Russia and Ukraine, who both sort of claim her as their own. Because they both have the Kievan Rus as their ancestors. Uh. So this has led to her depiction in various works of art and like theatre and literature. There's a Russian play, I believe, about her. And, hmm. um, she's something of a symbol of union and diplomacy between the East and the West.
0: Oh, huh, so, that's cool. That's a good legacy to have.
1: Yeah, whenever France and Ukraine have, like, a diplomatic thing, they always refer Engagement. back to Anne of Kiev, who was their first contact, basically.
0: Oh, yeah. I like that legacy.
1: Yeah, so we have uh, a 2005 statue from when uh, Ukrainian President Viktor Yushchenko arrived to Sonly in France, where her monastery is, Ooh. to um, unveil this statue.
0: Ooh, look. So
1: here it is. It's a little more striking and modern.
0: Well, Dan, that's giving that striking queenly vibe. Mm. Is it hair braided as well?
1: Yeah, she's got a big, a bigger, a, a chunky braid yes. coming down the back.
0: A bit more jewels. Yeah. Got some earrings. I like the crown. Mm. Give me a bit more, like, confident queen. Like, you know... I can
1: do it. She's like blowing in the blowing in the wind a bit more.
0: Yeah,
1: a bit more epic.
0: Yeah, it is.
1: And you can gaze upon all of these on the WordPress.
0: Or go in real life to see the statues.
1: (laughs) Yes. Also, a few years after this was made in 2014, a coin was minted in Ukraine depicting Anne, who's holding a fleur de lis scepter. I'll show it to you.
0: Ooh, yay! It's
1: like a little silver coin.
0: Oh yeah! And is that the church?
1: Yeah, and it's the church in the background that she found in France. Oh, I, I couldn't tell you what the value of this coin is, but it's it's silver, so I'm assuming it's some amount of um, kop- kopioka, which is this like the scent of the Ukrainian hryvnia. Yeah. So we got all of these depictions across France yeah, and Ukraine. They
0: really love her.
1: Mainly localized in like, Kyiv and in Sandomy, yeah, the two places that she's associated with. And it's it's funny because Anne was actually a fairly, like, standard queen in many ways, but mm. she has this compelling legacy.
0: Of unity.
1: Yeah, and it's not really even because of her, like, brief regent status, which is why we're talking about her. Yeah. But it's because of the connection that she represents between the French and the East Slavs. So... Yeah. That's cool. So what do we want to give for Anjante? I think it's really good.
0: It is. She didn't get to choose the marriage, sure, and, like, you know, some people might be like, oh, she shouldn't get points for being a legacy, that legacy, just because she was on Chosen for the Marriage. I'm like, she was Chosen for the Marriage and she didn't do a bad job enough where they were like, oh, let's pretend this didn't happen.
1: A degree of entente is giving them credit for creating their own legacy, like we saw with, with like, Hugh Capet and Robert II were very good at that, with, like, all the, the actions they did. Um... But another part of it is like what other people since then have made of them.
0: But also, like in a way, her actions of being stable.
1: But it is interesting that she—it's not because of what she did; it's because of who she was, really. Hmm. Unless you count the founding of the abbey as, but that—that that is a—that is a good legacy action yeah. in itself.
0: People really like that abbey
1: because Saint Vincent and Somley is, is a major abbey in in the French royal domain from this point yeah. forward. So, what are we going to get for Enchante? I think for me it's going to be high.
0: Mm, what are you thinking?
1: I was thinking like seven or eight. It's really good. And she's like still being talked about now because of this, of this symbol that she's become.
0: I think I'll go seven.
1: Charles Martel got an eight. And I think Charles Martel is a bit above her. Um, we are putting her above Fredegund. Fredegund was more impactful not because of her image, because of like what she actually did.
0: She did, yeah.
1: So I feel like that—that's uh, a good,
0: scandal yeah. element. Yeah.
1: So that's a that's a fourteen on Enchante.
0: Okay, not bad, not bad. Yeah,
1: not bad. So moving on to on guard.
0: On guard.
1: In on guard, we we talk about how active they were, and yeah, I don't think active is a word I'd use to describe Anne of Kiev if we're talking about politics. Yeah. Yeah.
0: She's so very quiet.
1: So I'd like to imagine her as a, like a badass lady who got stuff done, but there's oh, not no. a lot of evidence. There's a lot of blank spaces mm-hmm. here.
0: Yeah, she's no Olga.
1: Yeah, and she's not really she's not really necessarily fighting for power, like clawing her way to the top. She's already yeah. this magnificent princess content, with this almost. lineage. Yeah, she's content. Her mum's a saint. Her grandmother's a Byzantine princess. Like she's born into this illustrious family. She's mo- she, she marries into a just as illustrious family. Yeah, she, yeah, she's starting off at the top, and um,
0: she's like, I don't need to try to reach for more.
1: Yeah, and then she becomes the regent, but she loses her place as ruler of France about a year in.
0: Yeah, obviously shows power wasn't important to her.
1: Yeah, and she apparently got either seduced or abducted, um, so she's not not looking for good for on guard in that aspect. Because she mm. she really, she continues to be an advisor to the king, but she really fades into the background. Yeah. To the extent that we don't even really know when she died.
0: We know more about her husband.
1: Yeah, we know more about her husband. So as much as we like to give women the benefit of the doubt in this category, because it's not yeah. like they're like leading armies and they're at a societal yeah. disadvantage because of their gender. Um, I
0: There's really nothing to go yeah. on to...
1: I can't point to anything that she, like, did that was, like, that was a smart political move. Like, she got power through this. Like, nothing that Mm -hmm. she did. More to do with who she was. As we said in Anjadu. So. Yeah.
0: No, it was impressive she made the church not hate her. Yeah. Because the church seems to love hating people. Yes. (laughs) It's like its favourite hobby.
1: Yeah. She does do well in terms of catering to the church's needs, building this great monastery, Mm. so she can't... She becomes sort of untouchable in a way. Yeah. So that's good.
0: She can do no wrong in the church's eyes. That's
1: maybe better for Vlebu, I think.
0: Yeah, true.
1: She's not really a feminist icon. She gets... She gets shipped off to marry a man. She doesn't really stir the pot as queen. She's replaced as regent by a man. She runs off because of a man. She gets overshadowed by a man. man. (laughs) It's... Yeah, you want it to be The
0: only thing she does for herself is build a church Yeah And even that isn't really for herself, it's for the church It's for
1: monks, yeah, <laughs> who were men Maybe there were nuns as well, I'm not sure A few episodes from now We will have a female subject Who knocks She's out the badass. park Um Cool Yeah, spoil alert, we are four episodes away from Eleanor of Aquitaine Eey. So, which I've been, oh, wow, I close. have been pre- peer pressured into doing an Eleanor of Aquitaine episode, even though she's not a regent. Um,
0: <laughs> Are we going to talk about her whole life, or just her life in Paris? We're
1: going to have special focus on her time as Queen of France, because of course, Rex. But will skim over the other. Already talked about her time as Queen of England, yeah. yeah but we'll screw, we'll skim over the other. But we'll particularly be talking about her role in the Second Crusade. I think. Um, cool. Which is happens while she's queen. So. Yeah. Spoiler alert, she goes on an actual crusade. <laughs> what? Which is great. But anyway, going back to Anne, um, yeah, not as yeah. impressive. Um, yeah, it's nothing. Yeah, she, she just doesn't, she like literally doesn't want to do the job of ruling.
0: Uh, who can blame either, her? Either doesn't
1: want to or can't or is kicked out, you yeah.
0: know.
1: So it's not going to be a whole lot for me. I'd probably give her like a point for remaining as an advisor.
0: I'd do that as like a half point.
1: I'd give her a full point. Cause she's uh, I'm going half. just because she's not doing literally nothing, but she's doing sort of the bare minimum in terms of politics. Okay, so that's a 1.5 for on God.
0: Okay, mm.
1: so moving on to voulez vous, voulez vous. So, despite being raised in the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is now sort of becoming a thing because the Great Schism happens in, yeah. in 1054, which is like around the time Anne moves to France, um, yeah. She seems to get along really well with the local Catholic clergy, like, despite their churches Mm. splitting up while she's there. So, yeah, yeah, the difference between the churches, you know, it's quite, it's not as set in stone as it will be. So people aren't, like, scandalised by, like, this queen from the Eastern Church coming over and changing things. Like, not that she's really changing much anyway. She's kind of just, you know...
0: Staying on the boat, making sure not to rock anyway. Exactly,
1: she's not rocking the boat. Um, Yeah, rocking the boat. I
0: meant. Yeah.
1: So when her husband Henry the First opposed the Gregorian reforms, which you saw him do last episode, which was basically an attempt by the Pope to get more power over who appoints bishops over the over the king. Oh yeah. um, The Pope actually, rather than sending letters to Henry, he sent letters to Anne to like intercede. Um, to get her to be sort of a mediating force in the dispute and prevent Henry from doing oh. harm to the church. So we see once again, the Queen is being good cop to the King's bad cop. Yeah. Yeah. She's seen as the protector of the church while the King is is a tyrant. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, she's sort of the angel on the King's shoulder, which is what the Queen is supposed... Uh, that's supposed to be her role.
0: Yeah, the mother figure the Queen is to be The kindly, graceful mother.
1: Exactly the Marge to his Homer or something. <laughs> so when her regency starts, uh, her name appears in a few charters alongside that of her co-regent, Baldwin of Flanders, as we've said. But then she drops off very quickly. Yeah. But around the same time, she's founding the church of Sonly. So
0: she's getting in the good books of the church that they don't hate her, even though they're hating her husbands.
1: Yeah. And she was also known as a very charitable woman as well, going around, you know, giving up. Oh, the sort of all that, All that sort of good queenly stuff. Yeah. So, not a lot of information for Vulevu, but a good general vibe, I guess, yeah. is what I'd say. And the I think the monastery, it, it, it's quite significant. So um, And it becomes this yeah. monument to like Franco-Ukrainian relations, yeah. so that's good as True. well, diplomacy-wise. So, so what do I want to give for Vulevu? i
0: thinking maybe like two.
1: Two. <laughs> I was thinking like thinking a, a five or a six, because you did as well. But oh. I guess it's because it's not much.
0: One for church, so two for church. Yeah,
1: but I sort of measure it more on a scale of, like, one is they weren't very good to be around. Oh. Nine is they're amazing to be around. For me, it's, like, a scale of, like, would I would have wanted to live under their rule. And for Anne, it's, it's oh, either yeah, in I've the middle or slightly above the Oh, yeah, I thinking,
0: oh, yeah, I'd like to live with, like, you know. Yeah. She'd be that nice r- housemate.
1: I'm tempted to give her a six.
0: Okay, you've convinced me you to go higher. I'm going to go five. I...
1: Okay, because I gave Geburger of Saxony a six, and I think she's at least as good as Geburger in terms of the mediating force. Oh, she actually gets the same score. as We've given her the same scores we gave Geburger, so that's surviving a, a six, which is eleven for Voulez-vous Moving on to Ulala, Ulala, <gasps> <laughs> Anne is pretty much the ideal queen up until the marriage. Regency. Yeah, up until the second marriage, which does like a complete one hundred and eighty. Apparently, and marries the most scandalous choice possible. Um, yeah.
0: a, it's like she drew it from a hat and was like, Okay, I've picked this name, I better yeah. stick with it.
1: Like a man who's who is already married, who has a husband's cousin, who is an you know, upstart minor scandalous lord. Scandalous divorce. Yeah. A guy who's 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 started as like a very minor lord and has only come up through like scandal and you know, skullduggery power and power hungriness. Yeah. It's also a time when it was unthinkable for a queen dowager to remarry. Yeah. We saw, like, Geberga would never remarry after
0: um, yeah.
1: um, Louis IV died. I'm not sure what the opinion would have been at the time. Interestingly, it's not made too big a deal out of. Like, it can be exaggerated how scandalous this was. Yeah. But there is a sense she of, like... She
0: just wanted some dick <laughs> before she got married.
1: Yeah, but potentially there's a sense that she's kind of abandoning her family by, by marrying Ralph because she is getting taken out of this advisory role for her son, which is really politically important at this point. True. So while she isn't excommunicated directly, she is married to a potentially excommunicated person for the next fifteen yeah. years, and uh, Ralph himself is is worth a point or two because he is quite a despicable man with a very shady yeah, past. She's him. Yeah, interestingly, Anne seems to have passed on her proclivity for baffling life choices to her daughter <laughs> Emma. Oh. who is not recorded to have married anyone and mm. is usually identified with a legendary figure called Adigna or Adin- Adinia.
0: Oh.
1: So apparently, so th- I'm putting this in a lot because it's like, it's kind of scandalous.
0: It's interesting. Yeah.
1: I'll just say that. Um.
0: Yeah. So this will be
1: like a bit of a tangent about her daughter Emma because it's just interesting.
0: Yeah. Um, so I like a tangent. You know that? So apparently
1: Emma or Adinia, which is her like, more pious name um she was supposed to marry some lord um but she was very much in the no camp when it came to men in general uh (laughs) so she scarpered off to bavaria of all places hidden in an ox cart and she decided to get out when she heard a rooster crowing and a bell ringing which she took as a sign oh. from God.
0: It's like, oh, God's calling. There's a rooster and a bell.
1: The guy upstairs says it's time to get out of a cart. So she got out and she started living among the community. She never told anyone that she was a princess. Well, um, Which, you know, leads you to think She like, had
0: been preparing then, you know, well, it, unless she's there. And she's like, hi, how do I get water?
1: It says she never told anyone she's a princess. But I'm like, how did this get recorded then?
0: Or someone bumped into her in her later years like that knew her and was like, Emma, this is where you've been.
1: She became a holy hermit.
0: Oh, I love a good holy hermit. And
1: as we know, hermits often choose unusual places to live. So where do you think?
0: Like swamps.
1: Not, uh, uh, where, what did she live in? Cave. No, not a cave.
0: A swamp. A lake. More
1: specifically. It is nature based. A hut? Not a hut.
0: A shack. Shanty.
1: It is an, it, it, She lives in a natural object.
0: A, a rock?
1: It's not a cave or a rock. Tree. Yes, she lives in a tree.
0: Oh, she's a tree hat. <laughs>
1: she, cho- she chooses to live in the hollow of a linden tree. Hmm. And locals from the near nearby town of Pook uh, would come to ask hmm. her for miracles. Cool. So Adinia, uh, she lives there into her 50s and when she died apparently holy oil flowed from the hollow of the tree
0: cool down
1: the hill and people tried to collect it up to sell it as relics but it dried before anyone could get to it
0: it was like no you ain't touching my yeah. holiness you
1: aren't uh, you aren't benefiting off me <laughs> you these aren't relics. profiting off me yeah um so that's the story of Adenia who may be henry the First and anne of Keith's daughter emma maybe cool um So, Adenia was long regarded as the patron saint of Puk, which is in the modern district of Furstenfeldbruck. However, her status as such was never recognised by the church. So, um, she did get beatified by uh, by the Pope in the year 1600, um, but she was never an official saint. Apparently, you can still go to Puk uh, to see the Linden Tree, uh, which apparently still exists. Um, however, near the Linden tree, there is a grave dating from 1907 of uh, Julius Langben, who was an admirer of Adenia and who was an art historian, yeah. a philosopher and an early figure of the Volkisch movement. So a Nazi, Ooh. basically.
0: Ooh. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah. I don't like
1: that. Make sure you like spit on his grave on the way to pay your respects to Adenia. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, so pay your respects to her. Spit, spit on Julius Langevin's grave. Uh, grave. Yeah,
1: because he he in- yeah. laid, he inspired Hitler.
0: Yeah, he's the worst scum.
1: Yeah. So anyway, um, I managed to somehow shoehorn Nazis into Anne of Keith's La La Segment. Of course. <laughs> so is that worth any points?
0: <laughs> no, we can't connect her to the Nazis. No.
1: I mean, you can technically connect anyone to uh, anyone of Germanic origin to the Nazis in some way.
0: I have a family friend whose grandfather was a Nazi
1: not not nice
0: um, I know it feels like everyone lots of people who are European they have that ancestry unfortunately or any German related unfortunately.
1: I have German ancestry, but they moved to America in 1848 so they moved long before a hundred hundred years before World War II.
0: Yeah, but there could have been a branch that stayed.
1: Yeah, so I probably have cousins who were Nazis, um, distant cousins. Yeah. But um, they they l- my actual him. ancestors long left Germany and, and my one of my great grandparents on that side fought for America. He had to they had to change their name to a to a more American
0: Yeah, mine fought against the Japanese and now yeah. I live in Japan. <laughs> nice.
1: <laughs> That's quite funny how that happens. Back to Anne of Keith <laughs>
0: Yeah, back to Anna Keith. <laughs> what, have? what
1: do we want to give her for La?
0: Okay, we're gonna do Scandal for the husband. Yeah. That choice? Nah-uh-uh.
1: But she doesn't actually do anything scandalous.
0: Well, Scandal's choosing him.
1: If she did choose him, we don't know.
0: That's a point.
1: I might give it two points.
0: Can I give a half point for potentially having a holy hermit daughter because having a princess run away? Scandalous.
1: the Runaway princess. Okay, I'll give it I'll give it two point five as well, actually.
0: Cool, I'm going to one point five.
1: Okay. So that is a four for Ullah. Hmm. Vion Throne. The on Throne. Anne of Kiev reigns as Queen of Queen Regent of France. From
0: <laughs> Sound like you said cream. Cream
1: <laughs> She reigned Cream as of
0: France. La
1: Creme of France. The cream
0: of France.
1: <laughs> So Anne of Key reigns as Queen Regent of France from her husband Henry I's death on the fourth of August ten sixty to either to sometime in either ten sixty one or ten sixty two. So between a year and two years. So I'm gonna like split the oh. difference, give her a year and a half. Okay. So that's zero point two eight points, which is which is pitiful. Mm. Um but her her children, um, she has the same children as as henry the first obviously so we've got firstly yeah so we've got philip the first um who of course becomes king of france after papa uh we've got emma who may have fled to bavaria where she became the blessed adenia so outlives her outlives her mother as well um, we've got Robert, who died as a baby, so sadly can't mm. be counted. But he died in the same year as his father, I believe. Yeah. And we've got Hugh, who becomes Count of Vermandois by marrying Adelaide, uh, yeah. the last heiress of the House of Vermandois. So he becomes uh, he becomes his own branch of the Capetian dynasty, sure. called the Capetian the the Capetians of Vermandois. Um, okay. So she is the mother of of. Both the continuing direct line of Capetians and a different branch of the Capetians. Cool. Uh, and uh, no extra children with Ralph, Ralph of Crepi. Yeah. So that's three surviving children, which means 5.07 points. Hmm. So that's a total V on Throne score of 5.25 out of 20 for Anne of Kiev. So uh, tallying up the scores,
0: da-da-ling.
1: Da-da-ling, that is 35.85.
0: Okay, not bad
1: not too shabby she is oh she's our yeah she's our lowest spectator so far lowest scoring spectator
0: yeah
1: uh i was gonna say oh she got under bozo but bozo was actually not the lowest scoring spectator i thought he was um yeah. <laughs> no robert robert the strong and um Geberger both got lower than than bozo uh-huh. um so gaberger was the lowest but now anne is the lowest I guess we just don't we didn't know much about either of them. So that's yeah.
0: that's why they didn't if we get the had best a bit more scores.
1: But that being said, um what seating would would we would we give Anne of Kiev? Because of course she is as a spectator, she's not up for the guillotine or the final tournament. She will be in the stands somewhere, we just have to pick where. So
0: I'm thinking Economy Plus. So she's not nosebleed, but she's not VIP. She's just yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I She's think... not
0: Fredegarn level Not with Martel.
1: She's I think she's scraping by with that good legacy
0: Yeah um, I think that's the only thing that's gotten her into the economy class
1: Yeah because she's such a symbol
0: If she didn't have that no one would know her
1: Yeah putting putting a Ukrainian national symbol in the nosebleed section In our current political that's just climate That's wrong Would just be Feel, feel wrong <laughs>
0: I know I would um, I didn't even consider it At that too You just said that But I was more just thinking In terms of oh, I can't put her in nosebleed She hasn't done bad enough
1: I'm thinking about the optics <laughs>
0: Yep And um, I'm just thinking about Pure mm, She's not bad enough To be nosebleed
1: No I don't think so I think uh, She's an interesting Enough figure You'd have
0: to be pretty dull Or just mm, Yeah
1: yeah, we have to we have to hate you or um.
0: You have to be hate or dull.
1: Yeah, Hugh the Great got on un, got unlucky in the nosebleed section because um, of a coin toss. Yeah, <laughs> she was not happy with at the mm. time. So that's uh, that's Anne of
0: Kiev. Economy plus. Yeah. She gets a little free packet of nuts.
1: Yes, and um, <laughs> go and you know help her country, um, her native yes. country. Which is Ukraine. It is not Russia. It support. is Ukraine. So, as I did a, f- a few episodes back, I'm going to put some links to various things you can support. Because it is obviously we've been dancing around it, but there is a Russian invasion of Ukraine happening. Uh, for those listening in the future after it's happened. Um, yeah. Uh, we don't know what's well, going to happen. Hopefully
0: in the future we can report good news and say Ukraine won.
1: Hopefully. Yeah. Um, but for now, uh, please, you know, give to the Ukrainian refugees. I'm sure this will still be a problem years from now. So yeah. um, links will be in the show notes in whenever, wherever you're listening to this. Uh, we've also got an Apple podcast review, which I missed way back in February. Um, it's very good. It's five stars from um, <gasps> yeah. SM1977 and says, enjoyable podcast ranking all the kings and emperors of France a la Rex Factor. The hosts are engaging, and even though I'm looking forward to getting into more familiar territory, these early rulers, consorts, and mayors of the palace are still really interesting. Thanks so much, Ben and Eliza. nice review there. Keep the written reviews coming, because it's the best way to support the show without being a patron, but also sign up to the Patreon if you want to be a patron, get extra content. We've just recorded the Ratatouille episode. We We goof around and talk about the movie Ratatouille. So join us next time when we do Philip the First of France, Mm. who, Eliza, you'll be excited to know, he is also called Philip the Amorous. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So get ready for some saucy shenanigans Mm -hmm. happening with Philip the Amorous.
0: Woo! know how much I love a scandal.
1: It's going to be a -a chock-a-block episode next episode because we're going to have Norman Conquest happening. We're going to have Crusades happening. We're going to have lots of scandal, marriage scandal happening. Yeah. So get ready, strap cool. in for that, and that'll be the next episode.
0: Yeah.
1: That's going to be au revoir from me.
0: And goodbye from me.